Hey y'all! So, due to confusion, unexpected illness, and general entropy, this episode unfortunately does not have a cold open. But we think you'll really like it anyway. And thus... I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 385 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to more X-Factor, which I feel like we just did. I don't know. I mean, time has stopped working in the last few years, that is obvious to all, but I feel like it's especially stopped working in the last few weeks. I'm not sure why. Well, it's a combination of time stopping working and the X-Line just expanding exponentially so that it it compounds the sense of of time dilation and confusion. And also, in this case, X-Factor feeling like it takes forever because it's it's just not so good. Yeah, uh, that's that's very true. We um we try to be very positive with comics. I especially try to be very positive with comics. And the last time we did an X Factor episode, I was so excited. X Factor was going underground. Things were finally happening, and then 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 they didn't anymore. Uh, we're nearing the end of X Factor. We are going to be covering one thirty four and one thirty five today, and a strong guy one shot, which is basically an X Factor comic. And the series ends with number 149. So we are kind of in the home stretch, but man, it is dragging. Yeah, X-Factor here is is in its final decline, and it's at a point where I feel like the humane thing would be to send it to a farm where it can run and play with the Crimson Dawn. <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's strange because I have a lot of affection for these characters. There's some interesting stuff happening with the plot. Like, what we're looking at here is essentially the formation of the Hound program, which is going to be instrumental to the potential Days of Future Past, Dark Future. Like, that's good drama right there. We have a couple of villains on the team who are only there reluctantly, a lot of interpersonal conflict. We have old members of X-Factor coming back and sort of uh, providing a contrast with the darker turn that the team has taken. But unfortunately, what it feels like is we've also got a creative team who inherited this intricately set-up chessboard and is now playing checkers. Oh, harsh, but uh, kind of fair. So, I don't know. Let's see what we have to talk about, because there is some interesting, strange stuff here, and I have a lot of opinions about a lot of it. So, I know we covered X-Factor kind of recently, but nonetheless, reminders are always in order. Jay? So, last we saw X-Factor, that's the U.S. government team X-Factor, not the OG X-Factor, is dead. Well, I mean, okay, so they fake their own deaths, as X-Folks often do. See, the government proved itself very untrustworthy, especially in these post-onslaught anti-mutant times. As governments often do. Mm -hmm. And so X-Factor decided they were going to quit, and then pretend they exploded. After pretending to explode, some of them subsequently pretended to melt and get impaled. My point here being, they were very thorough. They were very thorough. It was quite dramatic. So this new underground, faked dead team has the same lineup as the old one. Who's that? Well, in charge is Forge, technopath and team leader. There's Polaris, longtime X-Factor member and mistress of magnetism. We've got two sort of reformed supervillains who are 
on the team or originally were on the team via government mandate, but have stuck with them as they left the government. Uh, those being Mystique, the often villainous but frequently morally gray shapeshifter, and Sabretooth, an animalistic and sadistic killer. There's also Wildchild, who's like Sabretooth, but less so, and Shard, a hologram lady cop from the future. See, now I'm just thinking of the comic book Lady Cop. I often think of the comic book Lady Cop. It's about a lady who's a cop. That's it. That's the entire premise. It's like, oh my god, what if a lady were a cop? I don't know. Her origin story's pretty dark. Like, her best friend and roommate gets murdered, and she hides under the bed and just sees the boots that the killer is wearing, and then eventually she tracks down the killer based on his boots, once she's a lady cop. Yes. It's an older comic book, if that's not obvious from the description. Very Bronze Age. Now, in addition to the current lineup, a couple members from the team's previous, more lighthearted incarnation have moseyed back onto the scene. Those are Multiple Man, long believed dead of the legacy virus, and he has turned out to be just fine. Not only that, but Multiple Man's best friend Strong Guy, who's been comatose after a heart attack a while back, seems to finally be on the mend. Also, Mystique's dead wife Destiny's grandson, Trevor Chase, a reality-warping moppet, has been attacked again by anti-mutant jerks and is now missing, so that's no good. And that leads us to X-Factor number 134, The Child. This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Eric Battle, inked by Art Taber, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I should also note, based on its title, that this comic is not, in fact, about Baby Yoda, a fact that makes sense given that he would not exist for, like, 25 more years, but is still mildly disappointing. Hey, that's Grogu to you. Uh, so my three-year-old godson refers to actual Yoda in Star Wars material as Baby Yoda, and I think society is changing and leaving us behind. Anyway, the child in question here is Trevor Chase, who kinda sucks. But first, let's talk about X-Factor's CD-ROM, because when X-Factor quit working for the government, they did so by violently throwing a CD-ROM, which they named as a CD-ROM, over and over and over and over again, at uh, the desk of Agent Bowser, their boss's boss's boss. And um, he is finally playing that CD-ROM, which features a video of Forge in what is absolutely not Cheyenne Regalia, talking about how they all quit, and then he morphs into the adversary and says that they're now the government's adversary. This is really contextually bizarre. Do we, we should, I feel like we should go back and sort of refresh, refresh folks on, on who, who the adversary is and why it's so weird that, that this is the form Forge is, is delivering this message in. Yeah, it's pretty strange. Uh, the adversary is an ancient chaos trickster god who was the primary antagonist of the X-Men's chapter of Fall of the Mutants. That's right. He is the reason they all died in Dallas. He's also a long, long-time antagonist of Forge's in particular. Yeah, Forge was raised uh, from a young age by his mentor Naze to face the adversary, and uh, it ended up that, yes, he did involve the mutants, and yes, he did again more recently in X-Factor. But it's a little weird that Forge would specifically turn into his horrible nemesis who has done untold damage to Forge's life and the world itself just to be mad at the government. Not even just to be mad at the government, just for the pun. 
There is that. I mean, I, he must assume that the government knows about the adversary. I mean, what happened in Dallas and Fall of the Mutants did get media coverage. Like, people saw the adversary. So I guess it's Forge saying he will be as threatening as the figure that killed a whole lot of people in a major American city not too long ago? That's that's not a great way to deliver a message. That's That's really poor communication. X Factor needs a publicity guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, very true. I feel like they uh, should not have cut Val Cooper loose. I mean, she has her flaws, but I think she's definitely a good person to tell people to hold the fuck up and think about what they're doing for a second. Which X-Factor literally never does. Actually, that's not true. They think continually about what they're doing, they just think about it while they're doing it. Kind of reminds me of every Dungeons & Dragons party I've ever been part of. They do kind of have that vibe, don't they? And that disregard for doors. Yep. Also, I feel like they open up pretty much every story with the team sitting around and somebody asking, okay, who remembers what we were doing last time? They do, and while every issue might be somebody's first, it's pretty ridiculous. So the other thing that this CD-ROM contains is, in fact, a virus, because Bowser doesn't give his IT guy enough time to scan the disk. Always trust your IT guy, Bowser. Just saying. What this virus does is give X-Factor access to, like, every single government database in the world. Guys, this is why you use an air-gapped system when you have questionable media that you're analyzing. Don't just hook it into your network. Haven't you seen Battlestar Galactica? At this point, only the original series. You know, I don't know if the original series had that whole thing about the problem with uh, network military systems. I've never seen the original. It looks very silly. I would guess not, given how much that particular problem riffs on technology that was relatively recent to the second series. Mm, fair point. So, they they use this, Forge uses this, to make the team effectively invisible to spy satellites, which is a neat trick. But what does the team then do with their newfound freedom and invisibility? They fucking go to Agent Bowser's house to confront him. Like, you guys... You just faked your own deaths, specifically for this specific individual human man's benefit. You you did this last issue, literally last issue. Come the fuck on! I know, Forge tells Bowser that rumors of X-Factor's death have been greatly exaggerated. Forge, they were exaggerated by you, like, 18 hours ago. Yeah. So... Bizarrely, they're at Bowser's place because they think he has something to do with Trevor's disappearance. On what basis do they believe this? Is there any any actual, like, evidence that has led them here? This part is unclear. I mean, we do know that uh, Sabretooth and Wildchild are trackers, so the fact that Mystique's, uh, I guess, grandson-in-law, something along those lines? Step-grandson. Step-grandson, there we go. The fact that Mystique's step-grandson has been captured, um, they can assume it's government-related because the government's been fucking with everything related to X-Factor lately. But Friends of Humanity literally just attacked him. Uh, that's true, yeah, and they're only indirectly governmentally affiliated with Graydon Creed dead. So, I don't know, I'm just gonna go ahead and chalk it up to Sabretooth and Wildchild following their noses. So even more bizarrely, once they get there, they find Trevor in a closet, and Bowser claims fairly credibly that he had no idea the kid was there in the first place. 
I mean, I believe that if I were a government agent, like a successful government agent with a long and storied career, even if I was an asshole like Bowser, I would really not have like captured some random kid and kept him in my own personal closet at my own personal home. That is unwise on literally every level. Yeah, Bowser is clearly not the sharpest tool in the chest, as as we've seen based on his reaction to X-Factor's whole ruse, but he's he's not that dull. And he is that paranoid. Um, so so yeah, we, we don't know how Trevor got there. We never find out how Trevor got there. Um, because before this conversation can go further, giant alien monsters show up out of nowhere, eat Bowser, and then wreck the house. Yeah, and we were talking about how this scene is portrayed, because... For me, it was pretty clear what their nature was, but for you, you were saying it just seemed to make no sense. Yeah, I mean, you immediately extrapolated that they were they were some, somehow linked to Trevor's powers. I did not. And I think that's because Trevor's powers are represented so massively inconsistently in his appearances. It's true, yeah. So we first saw Trevor Chase in X-Factor, I want to say 127, when he was attacked and beaten up by the Friends of Humanity. Um, we saw him start to use his powers as they attacked, which seemed to be some kind of a reality-warping field around him, but he was then knocked unconscious. So this is the second time we've seen his powers, and it appears that he's just bringing his nightmares entirely to life, which I'm not against that as a set of powers. That's kind of cool. But they'll change again next issue. They'll totally change again next issue. Like, I think that's one of my problems with this uh, mini-era of X-Factor, is it really seems like there's not a lot of plan for anything. Like, there are some general plot threads, as we mentioned before, the formation of the Hound program, X-Factor going underground, that sort of thing. But the details just don't hold together from one issue to another, and, and we need that. Otherwise, it just feels like we're at sea, and just these little random bits of, of content, of story. Exactly. And this isn't losing track of old or obscure plot threads. This is literally not being able to keep track of, of details and of events from issue to issue, or of causality from issue to issue. What's also strange is that Trevor Chase, uh, in his fear, keeps telling Mystique that she's next. She's next. They're going to come for her, Barbara. And uh, we know that he's close to Mystique. Uh, we, we know that at this point he has figured out that Raven Darkholm, the old friend of the family, uh, is in fact Mystique. Why would he be specifically afraid for her? Why is he afraid? I don't know. I... We could read into this, we could try to figure out all the details, we could try to, to make it good by creating this coherent story the way we were trying to do with Onslaught. I just don't know that that's possible. I don't think there really is much of a story here. I feel like Onslaught deserved that consideration in ways that this does not. Like, this is not grand and operatic, this is not a grand operatic failure. This is a very small prosaic failure. But you know what is successful? The fact that X-Factor faked their deaths, then immediately revealed themselves as alive to the guy they faked their deaths to? Well, Trevor's monsters kill that guy. Agent Bowser is now dead and or consumed in some kind of weird shadow dimension. And so, once again, X-Factor's secret is safe. It all worked out for everybody. I guess. So that brings us to X-Factor number 135 of Virtual Reality. It is... Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Art Taber, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. And, um, man, Matsuda is better than Battle, but the 
the art on this this arc is is definitely not among my favorite. Battle does a very good strong guy. I will absolutely give him that. But in general, I just it there's there's a lot of incoherence. There's a lot of proportional incoherence. Even between Matsuda a few issues ago and Matsuda here, like, I wonder if Jeff Matsuda was trying some new stuff. Because, for instance, when we saw Trevor Chase in his first appearance in 127, he looked like a, you know, somewhat mangified, but relatively normally proportioned pre-adolescent kid. He didn't look pre-adolescent. He looked like a teenager in his first appearance. Maybe more like a teenager. Anyway, young. Like, a, a, a young person. And here, he looks like some weird little evil anime goblin like his head is gigantic his hands are gigantic and he just looks really evil all the time you know who he fucking looks like who's that he looks like early iterations of rusty trail mark trail's goblin son mark trail has a goblin son yeah cool like well now now he's drawn to look like a person um uh jules rivera draws him in in incoherent keeping with the style of the strip in general but her two predecessors drew like clearly did not know how to draw children and and drew him to look like some bizarre wizened goblin creature oh is this like that old renaissance art where there's the virgin mary and she's holding baby jesus but baby jesus just looks like a grumpy 40 year old man but tiny yeah but somehow worse excellent i approve of horrible baby creatures but the point is that 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 trevor is clearly suffering from rusty trail syndrome Mm. Is it terminal? Not so far. I mean, if it if it if it goes the way it has for Rusty, then eventually you get an artist who draws you relatively well as as an age appropriate character. Well, we can only hope, I suppose. So, speaking of 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 uncanny representations, uh, Mystique narrates the opening of this issue, and oh boy, does Mackie not have her voice or character down? Huh. Tell me more. So she talks about how she's always wanted a normal life. I don't know. I, I can see that for Mystique. I can see her seeing the appeal of that, of that being part of what she was always looking for with Destiny but could never really achieve. But she also, I mean, she does really love crime, like, a ton. Yeah, what Mystique wants is to do crimes and then go home to her idyllic house with her wife and daughter. So basically she just wants crime to be her day job. No, it's a way of life. She just also wants to have an idyllic home with her wife and daughter who also do crimes with her. You know, that's true. I mean, back when Destiny and Mystique were still raising Rogue, like, obviously that didn't work out for Rogue very well, but Mystique's empathy's not ideal. I feel like she was pretty pleased with that whole situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that that was pretty much Mystique's, Mystique's you know, golden, golden years. The Halcyon days when, again, the whole family did crime together. The family that does crime together stays together. Doesn't really rhyme, but... It works. The family that steals together feels together? Hmm. I mean, I'm okay with going with that, yeah. It's a rough draft. We'll workshop it. The family that murders together may also be birders together? They might. Anyway, um, as we mentioned, Trevor has figured out that Raven Darkholm is Mystique, and he's cool with it. What he's not cool with is X-Factor, because he thinks that X-Factor is keeping her from spending more time with him. And, um... Also, he's got some kind of evil video game called X-Factor Exploits that allows him to maybe control them and maybe spy on them. It's really, really unclear. Oh, geez, this part. So, we see Trevor initially playing on a Nintendo 64 a Kirby game, so I assume that must be Kirby 64 The Crystal Shards, which is a pretty good game, actually. Catchy music. 
But yeah, then that goes to a game called X Factor Exploits, and I guess the implication is that he's using his video games to manipulate the world around him to, like, go after X Factor so they won't get in between him and Mystique anymore as he sees it. Okay, I'm fine with that. That's a solid premise. He's a kid who likes video games. He's got reality warping powers. He thinks this team is getting in the way of his his family. Solid. Fine. But the comic doesn't take advantage of that at all. It's totally unclear what he's actually doing to impact anything. There's none of the video game imagery that could make this really fun. I mean, after we see that X-Factor exploits title screen, I assume that's what it is, it's just text, then it's just X-Factor bickering. It's like Super Whiny Adults Simulator 64? I I don't get it. Like, there's so much potential here. I love video games. I love comic books. Creepy children can be fun. Do something with it, comic! The options are attack, belittle, and non-sequitur. You know, that actually sums up the government era of X-Factor pretty well, Jay. Thank you. I am a professional. Ugh. Now, meanwhile, Strong Guy has regained consciousness, mostly exhibited by the fact that he won't shut up. And he is getting moved from some kind of witness protection, but Madrox decides he's going to try to intercept the transport, and X-Factor decides that they have to stop him because he might accidentally give Guido another heart attack, and for some reason they can't just explain this to Jamie Madrox. Right. So... Remember, Guido has been comatose uh, since right before the Age of Apocalypse. His heart gave out when he absorbed too much energy, which made his body too large. That's how his powers work. And he didn't have time to get all of that mass uh, dissipated by using it, by using his strength. So he's been gone for a long time. He's been under for a long time. Now he's coming back. Madrox is very excited, having also showed back up from his presumed death and having been disillusioned by X-Factor's darker turn. So this all seems like happy stuff. Yay! Our our, our characters that were from a more fun and better written era of X-Factor are coming back. But they can't can't come together because the sheer joy of being with Madrox again might give Guido another heart attack. Yeah, yeah, that part's a little unclear. And you're totally right, they could just tell Madrox. We do know that Shard and Madrox have ways of getting in touch with each other. Like, X-Factor went to great lengths and great deception to make Madrox trust Shard. Yeah, I mean, we've been through this. It's, like, clearly not a well-thought-out storyline here. Um, anyway, Madrox does spring Guido, and Guido's heart starts to give out again, but first they are attacked by, uh, the government intercept that Trevor may have sent via his video game, but may just have watched someone else send. It's really unclear whether he's actually manipulating things or just surveilling them. Yeah, there's this picture of Trevor looking all scary and evil, and then behind him in the background is an image of a floating government transport ship thing flying out of a hangar. And I guess that's something that could be in a video game, but it's in the exact same art style as the comic itself, so it could just be a visual overlay of what's actually happening. That's the thing. Like, it just... There's so much missed potential here. It could have been a really fun-themed issue. The title of Virtual Reality would would imply that. Although, I don't know, maybe it's for the best that we don't get that. I mean, we see that what Trevor is playing on is, in fact, very specifically a Nintendo 64. So, if this was really him warping reality around the team with an N64, they'd probably just find themselves repeatedly crashing their goddamn hang glider a la Pilot Wings. That game was freaking impossible, or at least it was when I was 14. So... 
The government intercepts takes the form of a bunch of Operation Zero Tolerance ninjas who show up to kill Madrox and Strong Guy. And they're, they're literally, they're wearing ninja outfits, but they have guns. We have seen government agents in X-Factor wear ninja outfits before. I'm not saying there's necessarily a good reason for it, but there is precedent. Yeah, it's real stupid. I mean, okay, let's be charitable. Let's say that this is because Trevor Chase is influencing what's going on, and he thinks ninjas are cool because he's a kid, and it's the 90s. Even a kid in the 90s would know that you either dress your antagonists as ninjas or you give them guns. You don't get to do both. Mm, no, no, that doesn't work. I don't know, maybe it's just a different video game he's plugged in. This is just Super State Monopoly on Violence Brothers 64. Didn't sell very well. Or rather, it sold really well, but not as a game. Woo! That said, it is really good to see Guido and Jamie together again, even with everything going to hell. And so, that's kind of why it is genuinely effective when in the midst of their camaraderie, in the midst of them fighting back against these government ninja whatever they are, Guido's heart starts to give out. So Forge saves Guido with a big power harness, then offers to operate on his heart to fix it with the power of technology, and Guido is down with that. And we end the issue with Trevor just being vaguely villainous, and I don't think that plotline, or really any of these, go anywhere. We will see Trevor Chase in a couple more issues, but in a very different context, yeah. This seems like it should have just been a one-shot about a creepy kid and the way his powers worked. It could have worked really well if they'd picked a premise and stuck with it. Or you make it a story about the kid who really does feel like X-Factor is getting in the way of the person he loves being there for his family and sets things up for them to get killed, and that's sort of the big heart-wrenching revelation that it was him. Right. Although... Hey, wait a minute, that reminds me. The only people he actually almost got killed were Strong Guy and Multiple Man, right? He has no idea that they're related to X-Factor. He doesn't know who they are. He was just jamming on that thwart button so hard. Oh, man. Reality warping button mashers are the worst. Right? Now, the third issue we're looking at today is a delightful breath of fresh air after this nonsense. It is silly... It is not particularly continuity attached. It is not going to come back to haunt you in the in the near or distant future. But it is an awful lot of fun, and that is Strong Guy Reborn number one, the heart of the matter. This one-shot is written by Todd DeSago, penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Matt Webb, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. I assume the title is a reference to the recent Heroes Reborn, the alternate universe where all the Avengers and shit showed up in after Onslaught. It doesn't really go further than that in its referencing. This isn't like a Mojoverse story that's going to be a great big parody. This is also a really fun case of exactly the right art team for the right story. You'll either like Smith and Tiber's art on this or you won't, but it's a perfect match for the tone of of what Dezago is is writing. And... It's fun, and it's silly, and it's just the right level of cartoonish. Completely agreed here, yeah. Uh, Todd DeZago, we've seen before. He did a lot of scripting uh, with various other writers. He's certainly done some X-Factor before. Uh, I don't know that we've seen a solo writing credit from him, aside from this issue, but he does a pretty good job. It's a humorous issue. It's very specifically a comedy issue. For Strong Guy, I entirely buy that. That is the appropriate direction to go. And it continues the long X-Men tradition of lighthearted one-offs in space. 
It does indeed. Because we open with a giant space battle with giant space narration. And we find out that the Jorkin Krant War has been going on in space for 6,000 years, exactly. Centered on both sides, the Jorkins and the Krants, trying to capture the same moon, which has become this great big symbol of their conflict, and it's the only part they even remember. They don't even know why they're fighting aside from that moon. This is going to be important later, but the moon in question is uninhabited, lifeless, and generally useless. Uh, yes, exactly. And like you said, Jay, the art is great. First of all, there's just excellent comic book outer space. Like, you know how space is mostly just black nothingness with little points of light and stuff? Comic book space is not. All of those rare, colorful nebulas and stuff are just everywhere. There's a bunch of that. There's a bunch of Kirby Crackle. There's close-by planets everywhere. Like, space is very dense in comics, and I appreciate that about it. My favorite example of that is always the way that Walter Simonson draws space around Asgard. There's just so much rad shit going on in the sky. I still kind of want to get a half-sleeve tattoo of just that kind of space. Ooh, do it. The art also manages to continually be very silly. Uh, One of the spaceships has a sticker on the back that says, How's my driving? Call 1-800-GO-KRANT. We'll see a lot of little silly references in the comic. But we don't spend too much time in space yet, because we are heading to a beach on Earth with Strong Guy and Lila Cheney sunbathing. Okay, not that anybody could ever forget Lila, but if any of our listeners have forgotten Lila, Jay, what should they know about Lila? She's the best. Lila Cheney is an intergalactic rock star and thief. She can teleport, but only ludicrously long distances, like intergalactic distances. She makes her home in a Dyson sphere, and Strong Guy was, for a long time, her bodyguard. Yeah, that's where he first appeared, as I recall. And Andy Smith, we quickly see, is a great choice for specifically a Strong Guy one-shot. His Strong Guy is awesome, because Guido's got, you know, a reasonable, recognizable, detailed anatomical structure, but also those ludicrous proportions that are very much a part of his character design. Well, and his, his proportions are very specifically cartoon proportions superimposed on a real person. Exactly, yeah. And so... When you can add a little bit of realism to that, it actually makes the character design work really well. Uh, His Lila is, you know, your usual very thin, ultra-sexy female character in a 90s comic. That's fine. But what's important about the way that uh, Lila and Guido are both drawn is how incredibly animated and expressive they are. Anytime anybody has a feeling, they'll be waving their arms around, they'll be slightly off the ground as they're yelling. Like... That cartoon-like quality you mentioned, Jay, is very present. I also appreciate that there are a bunch of X-Men action figures and X-Men comics scattered around the two of them, along with various McDonald's wrappers and stuff. Uh, In fact, I think one of those comics may be the famous Joe Matarera variant cover of Uncanny X-Men 342 with Rogue-looking badass uh, in her purple space costume. If there is any X-Character who absolutely and unquestionably owns their own action figure, it's Strong Guy. Totally. So Guido helpfully explains his recent backstory as he processes what's on his mind. Various members of X-Factor dying and leaving, his heart attack, learning of all of X-Factor's changes, not knowing where he fits now. And as he does this, we see him gesture to and then squish these ridiculously detailed tiny sand sculptures of each of the scenes that he's describing, each of the characters he's describing. And this culminates in him just holding out his hands in bafflement and a sand sculpture of him in the exact same pose right in front of him. 
how could his giant hands have made these? How long must they have taken? Why is he willing to squish each one to show how they died as he narrates? That doesn't matter. Like, the logic in this comic only exists to serve pacing and humor. Right, it's cartoon logic. And Lila asks Guido to come work for her again as as her bodyguard, because she misses him. You know, they were best, best friends for a long time, and he says, uh, nah, she doesn't need him, she's safe. But, uh, she, he is proven wrong immediately, as the Jorkins open a portal behind her and yoink her through to threaten her into teleporting a bomb to Krant headquarters. Except then, Guido is kind of right, because she just sort of looks at them and is like, did you seriously just kidnap a teleporter? And teleports immediately away. And further uses that teleportation skill to, uh, yoink Guido off into working for her again. A, a not entirely unwilling Guido, we should say. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, more considerate than that time that she teleported him naked, soapy, and from the shower directly onto an intergalactic concert stage. I, I feel like this isn't the first time she's done that. That's just part of their friendship. That's kind of how they work. I'm not even sure that's the first time she's done that in an X-Men comic. <laughs> Probably true. So, Guido does indeed join back up with Lila's crew. He's training new various bodyguards, including a big muscular purple guy named Cretor who wears fuzzy pink boots. There actually is kind of a nice fake-out. Like, the scene just cuts to Guido fighting this big purple space monster, only to find out that it's somebody who just applied for a job because he really wants health benefits. Yeah, I like Cretor. Cretor is a very wholesome individual. He is a very wholesome individual. Scary looking, but wholesome. And all of the bodyguards, Kretor included, are proportioned basically like Guido, just with absurdly muscular upper halves that are like six times by volume as big as their lower halves. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I mean, we've certainly seen those kind of proportions in comics, like Graydon Creed's strange genetic and genetically engineered guards in suits had those proportions. Guido always has. But the fact that Guido is not unique with those proportions, I guess it makes him less singular, but also contributes to sort of the heightened ridiculousness of this story. Guido is still significantly larger than the other folks with those proportions. I suppose that's true. And perhaps it's because he's so large that he is noticed by the Jorkins, who then institute their plan B. They can't kidnap Lila to get her to teleport a bomb to their enemies, so they kidnap who they assume is their boyfriend, which A, Guido's not Lila's boyfriend, they're just buds, that's been established, and B, they accidentally get Kretor instead. Right, the only instructions they give to the kidnap team is, you know, the large security guy. And, well, Kretor is large, and he's a security guy. Mm-hmm. So, it's just a comedy of miscommunication and errors. Lila gets a threat message from the frog-like Jorkins about Guido being gone. Somebody else opens a portal into Jorkins' space to kidnap Kretor from his kidnappers. Lila's manager panics and tells Guido that Kretor is gone. Like, everyone is just running away and not listening and not having all the appropriate information. But what Guido does know is he needs to get into space to fix whatever the hell is going on. Because all he knows is that Lila ran off allegedly to rescue him, and he's still on Earth and just fine. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the fact that in whatever the hell planet they've been playing, that they've been touring, there's a flying saucer rental nearby. I even more appreciate which flying saucer rental it is. Yeah, this is Spiff's Saucers, featuring Spaceman Spiff from Calvin and Hobbes on the sign. And, ah, uh, this this actually kind of made me realize the extent to which I I didn't catch it at first, but... 
Smith and Tiber's art felt familiar, felt, felt familiar. It's so heavily Bill Watterson influenced. Like, that's the connection I kept on missing. Yeah, I mean, we're so used to Calvin and Hobbes having that specific cartoony style of Calvin and Hobbes and Mom and Dad and Susie. But, like, whenever we would go into Calvin's fantasies, the art would get surprisingly detailed and realistic. Or at least, you know, realistic for the setting that was being covered, be it private detectives or science fiction or whatever. Well, and just the frenetic kineticism of the pages, the way that motion transfers and translates from panel to panel, the way that characters interact physically with one another and their surroundings. So here's a question. We do know that Franklin Richards has a big, really big rug in his room with a picture of Hobbes on it. We learned that from an onslaught issue. So that would imply that Calvin and Hobbes is an entertainment property in the Marvel Universe. And thus, I can only assume that Spiff's Saucers is also referencing that entertainment property and presumably is legally licensed, I guess? Maybe Spaceman Spiff is a real person who is separate from Calvin and Hobbes in the Marvel Universe. Oh man, this is getting complicated. Or, I don't know, maybe this is just another IP ripoff like those Calvin peeing truck stickers. I like the idea that Calvin peeing truck stickers are a universal constant. Or a multiversal constant, rather. The multiverse sucks, Jay. Well, it's time for a very silly chase, mad, 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 mad world style. Having realized that the object of her search has been kidnapped again, Lila bullies the Jorkins into giving her a spaceship. Guido, who's trying to find Lila, sees her leaving the Jorkin ship and uh, suddenly pivots his flying saucer to chase after her. The Jorkins themselves are tracking Lila's ship that she stole from them, figuring that if she's going to Krant space, then once she's there, they can just use the homing device they put in the ship to send out a bunch of missiles at the Krants. Guido is trying desperately to catch up with Lila, and she just crashes her ship straight into the Krant Fortress, because she can teleport out and apparently not maintain her momentum. Uh, Guido, alas, doesn't have time to correct course, and crashes himself. And there's a uh, panel here that suddenly gets a lot more serious, because remember, when Guido absorbs impact, when he absorbs kinetic energy... He gets more physically large. His muscles just bulge and bulge and bulge, and he gets even bigger. And unless he can release that in time, unless he can release that kinetic energy within 90 seconds, that mass becomes permanent and is permanently painful. That's why he looks the way he does, because the first time his powers manifested, he didn't know what to do, and he kept that kinetic energy for too long. That's why he's in constant pain. And the art team really does sell just the agony he's in and just the panic in his eyes. But thankfully it works out okay because a bunch of crants come to attack him and he just beats the hell out of them in a beautiful, beautiful scene. It is seriously straight out of Looney Tunes. There's a big cloud with fists and feet and stuff sticking out of it and also random items flying out of the cloud. There's a soccer ball, a toaster, a tennis racket, a toothbrush and toothpaste, a tire, an anvil, a kitchen sink... It's goofy as shit. So the Krant King manages to capture them, and he restrains them and talks about how he's going to torch them all using a vat of acid he's holding, until Lila agrees to use her teleporting power to teleport a bomb to the Jorkin homeworld. Which is, of course, the exact same plan the Jorkins had in mind for the Krants initially. Alas, when Guido asks the king to check on the time using the watch he stole from Lila, the king turns his hand and pours the acid all over himself. Wah, wah. 
It reminds me a lot of Rick Dick and Vic Chalker from way earlier X-Factor. Those were these sibling villains who all accidentally killed themselves using the weapons they built to kill X-Factor, who never even knew that these three guys existed. Oh, the Chalkers. I, I didn't think of this earlier, but did the Chalker parents name two of their sons Richard? Oh, because there's a Rick and a Dick. Yeah. Huh. I mean, maybe they realized that their kids were not going to have a high chance of survival, so they figured a redundant name or two wasn't that much of a problem. Okay, okay. Well, our heroes steal a Krant ship and prepare to get the hell out of there, but meanwhile, each alien race thinks they have a great plan. The Jorkins figure that our heroes must be at the Krant homeworld, which they can then send some missiles toward using the homing device they put in that crashed ship. The Krantz figured that the heroes must be heading to the Jorkin homeworld and track the tracking device they put in the ship that the heroes have stolen. And unfortunately for both of those, Lila has discovered both tracking devices and teleported them to a different location. So each race locks on to the signal of their own tracking device and shoots all of their missiles, which include things like a bundle of dynamite, a spatula, a giant pencil, a golf club, an acme bomb, a salt shaker. A frying pan. It's, it's pretty great. Like, it's so silly, it doesn't try to not be silly. It's charming. And uh, as you might guess, the tracking devices were in fact put on the moon that both alien species had been fighting over for 6,000 years. So it blows up real good. The cause of the war is now gone. And Lila and Guido head home, where Lila breaks down in tears and tells Guido that she wants him to stay with, with, with her band, not just because she likes having him there, but because she's really worried that if he goes back to X Factor, his heart's going to give out again. It's never really been a question of how strong my heart is, as much as where it is. And that's not X Factor anymore. It's jumping all over the cosmos with my best pal, Lila. This really is one of my favorite ex-friendships. Lila and Guido are both very into romantic relationships individually. I mean, see her with Cannonball and any number of folks, him with Pirouette back in the day, and his big crush on Monet way later. But Guido and Lila are just these emotionally intimate, very close friends. And admittedly, co-workers. It's just really nice. Like, it never gets complicated. Uh, they just have a lot of fun together, and they care a lot about each other. And it's as simple as that. Alas, in the middle of their next concert, the combined Jork and Krant forces show up for their new goal, revenge on Lila Cheney for the destruction of their moon. So Lila and Guido run the hell away, once again to their new ship, which is bizarrely the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, to continue their adventures, which they will presumably be on for quite a while, because it's going to be a while before we see either of those characters. And that makes me happy. And the issue closes with, with some terrific activity pages. We've got um, a beach-themed maze, a connect-the-dots, and uh, best of all, some strong-guy paper dolls. Yeah. And I think part of why we both had so much fun with this issue is that X-Factor has not been very fun lately, like this current run. And so to have Strong Guy come back, who I know is a character we've really always enjoyed since he first appeared on the page all those years ago— to have him, him come back, and then have this just be this light-hearted space romp with very few consequences, it was just refreshing. It was a breath of fresh space air. That, that sounds perilous, but yeah, it's a tremendously fun issue, and I, I enjoyed it so much. And I especially enjoyed it, um, I'll admit, in contrast to the two other issues that we, we read alongside it. I'll take it. What I'll also take is questions from our listeners. 
Brian asks via email, what mutant power do you think would be the most useful day-to-day, personally, professionally, whatever, and what power would be the most fun to have? Oh, man, as far as usefulness, I will always say Jamie Madrox, the multiple man. Time is by far my most finite resource, personally and professionally. And so the ability to just do all of the things I want to do at the same time and then merge all those memories together so I, as an individual, have still done them all, that would be great. But if you've got Madrox powers, you've got the problems of of your dupes not necessarily wanting the same thing that you do. You know, we've all got our own psychological issues. We are all our own worst enemy. I feel like that wouldn't necessarily be that much of a change of pace for me. As far as fun, I don't know. So many of the X-Men's powers seem like a ton of fun. But right now, at this very moment, the super agility powers that seem to be secondary for, like, half the mutants out there, from Gambit to Feral to whoever, that would be awesome. Just parkouring the hell around everywhere, seemingly effortlessly, I would enjoy that. Or if we're going with a standard flight thing, I think the most fun version of flight, probably Cannonball. It would be like you were on a roller coaster all the time. You just run into everything. I mean, okay, there would be a lot of property damage, to be fair, but in a world where superpowers existed, I feel like most people wouldn't sweat that too much. So, if we're talking about useful, for me right now, time is, is definitely kind of the central concern. So some kind of time manipulation or time dilation would be would be great. If you specifically want us to choose powers from the comics, I mean, I think Douglas Ramsey has the most useful superpower in the Marvel Universe. Oh, especially as it's been applied over the years to be not just about language, but any form of communication. As far as powers for fun, I was going to say flight, but actually I'm going to go with Mystique's style of shape-shifting, wherein she can do anything the body she shifts into are capable of, because that also gives you, you know, flight, super agility, etc. And you can turn into a rad monster sometimes when you want to be scary. Or just for fun. David asks via email, Sinister seems like the kind of person that would produce a musical. Obviously, he would only use his clones. What production do you think Sinister would produce, and would it be more catastrophic than Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark? So, Miles has his own answer to this, and I want to establish right now that that answer is wrong. Because there is one and only one correct answer to this question, and that is Starlight Express. And yes, it would be even more catastrophic than Turn Off the Dark. That's the the train one where everybody's on roller skates? Yeah, that's the glam musical about trains that fuck. Oh man, and if Sinister ran that, oh, the body count would be so high. I mean, even without Sinister, the body count of Starlight Express tends to be pretty high. (laughs) Fair. Okay, so my answer may be objectively incorrect, as you just established, but I'm still going to go for Little Shop of Horrors. It's got horrible alien monsters that are probably genetic engineered in some capacity. It's got sadistic scientists slash dentists. But really, if I'm being honest, the main reason I want to see Nathaniel Essex's version of Little Shop of Horrors is to see a clone of Sinister earnestly singing somewhere that's green in Audrey's wavery Brooklyn accent. Also, suddenly Sinister. You you know I'm going to have to write those now. I mean, I'm not saying I was secretly hoping you would say that, but... Damn it. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's go now to the angry Clermontian narrator. Wow, Ellery. Wow. You and Luke Bennett had every chance in the world to do better, and yet here we are again. Have you considered maybe not fucking up? Or is that just utterly beyond your- Wait a minute. Are you playing video games right now? Seriously? Fucking seriously? And with that... 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Hawk Talk. In two weeks, the X-Men team up with the brand new Brotherhood. And Maggot makes his debut.